Good morning. Um, we will be continuing our mini-series regarding the elements of prayer from the acronym ACTS, uh, that is Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. Um, last week, Aji brought to us the element of adoration in our prayers. Today, we will be looking at confession and seeking forgiveness when we pray. In the prayer that the Lord taught us in Luke 11, He said, uh, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. So why should confession and repentance be part of our daily prayer? Simply because we sin. But my question is, do we really understand this aspect of prayer? Well, brother, you might say, I understand that the people outside the church, they are the ones who need to confess their sins and repent. But I'm a believer. You see, sometimes the problem begins when we think it's inappropriate for a Christian to confess their sins to God since God already knows their sins. And He has forgiven us through Christ. But my dear brothers and sisters, I hope you don't think that way. And if you do, we need to confess our sins and repent. For we have forgotten the fact that we are Christians simply because we are forgiven sinners, saved by the grace of God. Confessing our sins frees us from the burden or hindrance to keep on pressing toward the goal for the upward call in Christ Jesus. Confession keeps us aware that we have feet of clay, that we are always dependent on God's grace. And today, we will be looking at Psalm 32, from which David, the author of this psalm, will give us six lessons on confession and forgiveness. And I trust that this psalm will teach us uh, a better understanding of our need to confess and seek forgiveness when we come to God in prayer. Let us pray. Father, our compassionate God, we seek your grace to help us understand this aspect of prayer. May your Holy Spirit grant us understanding, focus our hearts and our minds so that we can hear your words being preached. In Christ we pray. So please open your Bibles to Psalm 32. We will be reading the whole chapter. Psalm 32. Starting from verse 1, it said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly Offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. 
Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 32 is called a maskil. The Hebrew meaning is uncertain, but the Bible dictionary said that it denotes a song enforcing some lesson of wisdom, more like a didactic song. It is also called one of the seven penitential psalms, probably because of verses 3 to 7, um, a recollection of his experience which we will dig into later. And it is often closely linked to Psalm Psalm 51. But what is Psalm 51? Psalm 51, the background of which speaks of David's um, dark chapter in history. You can read that on 2 Samuel 11 and 12, wherein that time when Israel was busy fighting the Amorites, um, David was sitting at his palace. There, when he got up from his uh, lazy boy and walked out on the rooftop of the palace, he saw a beautiful woman, Bathsheba. In the end, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of his elite soldiers, which led to conspiracy, a cover-up, and finally, a murder. And for almost a year, David played the role. He has hidden his sins as if nobody noticed it until one time Nathan, the prophet, rebuked him. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So Psalm 51 describes uh, David's repentance and remorse in detail. It says on verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You see, David's sin was great, but his repentance was also sincere. And he has given us a public record of that repentance written on that psalm. Psalm 51 shows the struggle of a repentant soul that longs to be restored to God and wants to see the face of God again. He said on verse 11, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So having confessed his sin, Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin and you shall not die. So if that's the background to David's experience to Psalm 51, Psalm Psalm 32 is more of a reflection of the experience that he had about sin and how he had been forgiven. It may well be that Psalm 51 is the experience that he is talking about or maybe not. Whatever the case, Psalm 32 gives us six lessons on confession and forgiveness. The first lesson begins with 
the blessings of forgiveness. He said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. So our psalm begins with a double beatitude. Literally, uh, it, it's translated, Oh, the happiness, or Oh, the blessednesses. And it is often used as interjection, or we can say an exclamation. So it should be read like, Blessed is the man, or blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And it is said that this is the second psalm that begins with a beatitude. The first one, which is Psalm 1, which said that um, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. In Psalm 1, there is a blessing to the man who is walking in the right path. For he is like a tree that yields fruit in season because it is planted by the waters. He is constantly sustained. But Psalm 32 has a different blessing. It is talking about the man who previously was walking before God but then take the bypath meadows, and he got lost. And after he came to his senses, he turned around and get back on the right track again, only to find out that God was already waiting on him, who hugged him, kissed him, and restored him back to his family. And isn't that amazing? Aren't you glad? And that is what he is talking about, that joy. So, if somebody asks you, are you blessed? Are you really blessed? My friend, have you experienced that blessing? You know, if this psalm is a classical piece, it begins with a grand overture. You know, ta-da! You see, it is something you need to be excited about. And David did not say, blessed is the man who have a lot of money in the bank. No, he didn't say that. He said, he didn't say, Blessed is the one who can drive an expensive car, nor the one who can buy social media for billions of dollars. No, David said, Blessed is the man who can declare and rejoice that my sins have been forgiven. The one who can declare, Though my sins be scarlet, it is now washed away as white as snow. That is the blessed man. And he begins to define sin in four ways, as if to describe the malady, the problem of sin, so that we can understand more of the blessings of being forgiven. He said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Sin is described as transgression, rendered in the Septuagint by the word anomia, which means lawlessness, meaning rebellion. It is crossing the line. It is trespass. It is breaking away from God's boundary expressed but by a conscience defiance of His will and authority as revealed in His holy law. It is like when you saw a sign that says, do not cross the line. You know what that means, but what do you do? You look around and you do it anyway. That's transgression. Sin is described as sin, meaning missing the mark. 
And from the archery illustration, it's when you shoot an arrow, it not only misses the mark, but it falls short of reaching the mark. And from the basketball standpoint, it's called air ball. It's the deviation from the path of well-pleasing to God. That's why in Romans 3 verse 23 it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So when you try to do something to please God, yet you still end up failing to please God. Isaiah 64 verse 6 said, For all of us have become like the one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy garment. You see, transgression and sin as described is about our performing, our acting out, our doing. And the next two, iniquity and deceit, is about our being, who we are inside. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Iniquity. It is the description of the inward perversion of our nature. It is the manifestation of our twisted nature. You know our inclination to do what is wrong. Psalm 130, another penitential psalm said, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who can stand? And sin is called deceit, guile, or hypocrisy. It is when you try to trick or try to deceive someone. When you cause someone to accept as true or valid whatever is false. You see, in Psalm 78, verse 57, it says, Israel turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. You see, Israel is described as having turned away from God and acted treacherously as if they were a twisted, a deceitful bow. A bow that you cannot be trusted, that you cannot rely on. Imagine you, you're going into battle and you have this only one bow, but you cannot use it. Why? Because it, twist, it is twisted. That's deceit. That's hypocrisy. As if the psalm is saying to us, that in our innermost being, there is something inside of us that God sees, and that is because of sin in us. That's why God cannot rely on me. That's deceitfulness. David said, we need to discover the depth, then the taint of sin in our hearts, our thoughts, our feelings, in our words and deeds, because right confession flows from a right understanding of sin. That is why Paul in Romans 7 verse 24 exclaimed, What a wretched man that I am! Who can deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, the blessing is not merely knowing the depths of our sin, but in the forgiveness of our sins. For that reason, the psalm begins with, an exclamation, the blessedness of discovery that God is such a gracious God. That He can take a rebel like me, someone who has a filthy garment with a twisted nature and unreliable me. And by grace, through His Son Jesus and the inner working of His Holy Spirit, can make me clean of my sin. And because of that, I can come before His presence and seek His mercy and forgiveness. 
Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And as four words were, described to de- were used to describe sin, there is also four ways of describing forgiveness. You see, he said, transgression is forgiven. From the Hebrew word nasa, which means to lift, to carry, to be borne away, to lift your burdens away. You know, just like in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, who was at the foot of the cross, he said, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. Your transgression is forgiven. Your burden is taken away. Sin, at the same time, is also covered. From the meaning to cover, to hide, as with a covering, so that it becomes invisible to God, as if it had never taken place. You know that, that stain? If you had that stain in your couch or in your dress, that crimson stain in your life, it will be called, Though your sins be scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Iniquity. Iniquity will not be counted unto you, nor reckoned. It will not be imputed unto you. Why? It's, it is like as if you have a debt, but he canceled it. Why? Because somebody has paid the debt. That is why the forgiven man is described as the one whose spirit there is no deceit. He no longer has guile. He no longer tries to hide his sin. No longer has hypocrisy, but honestly faced iniquity, transgression, and sin in all their dreadfulness in the sight of the Holy God. Which is why this is not the man that God blesses. This is the blessed man. The consequences of knowing that you have been forgiven and this is done through Christ. Isaiah 53 said, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. Christ carried our burdens. He was crushed for our iniquities. He paid our debts. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by His wounds we are healed. For it is Christ who atoned for our sins by His blood. All we are like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. God laid upon him the iniquity of us all, making Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us and counting him as a transgressor in order that we might be the righteousness of God in him. That is why when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him in the river Jordan, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, for Christ bore our sins on the cross and we, having died unto sin, might live to righteousness. By his stripes we are healed. So now, do we have a reason why confession is part of our daily prayer? Do you want to be really blessed? If so, confess your sins to God. You need to be made right with God by your confession of your sins and receive that blessings of forgiveness. Then you can sing with this hymn with gladness, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. 
is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. The blessings of forgiveness. Lesson number two, the agonies of guilt. You know, the question that arises here is, what do you do with guilt? When you sin, what do you do? Um, There was a TV commercial when I was a kid in the Philippines. There was this guy who was always getting into trouble. Uh, Not that he did something wrong, but because the commercial said, he's got the guilty look. So when there's a robbery and he happened to pass by, he is the number one suspect because he's got the guilty look. So the remedy was to take a pill. Actually, it was an ad for diarrhea. So if you take the pill, it says no more guilty look. Um, It may not be the best illustration, but what I'm saying is, guilt, if you try to hold it in, it has consequences. It may show in your face or it may manifest somewhere else. Verse 3 said, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Do you daily dally with sin? I mean, do you waste time? Do you tarry to deal with sin? No, David kept silent. Well, he said, God was silent, so I'll keep silent. But you know what? He said, my bones wasted away. And he was groaning. Other translations said, he was roaring all the day long. Isaiah 9 verse 18 says, For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It also has been said that the one who will not speak his sin to God has to groan. Remember, this is poetry. We don't know how this has affected him personally or metaphorically. Could be emotionally, physically, or psychologically. But this is how he describes the depth, you know, the torment, the agony, the misery that he has experienced. Well, you see, if we are talking about Psalm 51 experience with Bathsheba, how can this be possible for David or a person who publicly committed a grievous sin to be silent? What a shame. Somebody might have known what he has done. You know, the people close to him, his servants. But how about us? How about you? Maybe we need to ask, how about us who commit grievous sin, well, not publicly, but in silence, who sin privately in our hearts? How easy would be for us to keep silent? In Matthew 5, Jesus said that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. How easy it is for us to plot the destruction of people's reputation, to slander their motives, or slay them with our words. In social media, even using Bible verse, how easy it is for us to justify slandering other people in our thoughts. He deserves it, right? How easy it is for us to justify being angry and vengeful to a colleague who mistreats us 
and gave us a poor remark because, and that caused us our promotion. Jesus also said that when you look at a woman with lustful intent, you have already committed adultery in your heart. I'm sure we can think of thousand ways we can rationalize adultery to ourselves, if only. In what ways do you think we defend ourselves when we receive an assault of guilt that comes our way because we have committed adultery in our hearts? Surely we kept silent. Verse 4 said, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Have you ever had that experience when you want to move on with life and you want to continue on, yet somehow things don't work out and you're just dragging your feet? You could say that oh, it's because of my messed up family, my boss looks down on me, my wife is not supporting me, that is why my life is not moving along. It could be true, but maybe, maybe, your problem is with God. You see, if you are a child of God, and if you sin, and He is a good father, He disciplines His child. And because He is good, He will not allow His children to be comfortable with sin. Maybe God is saying, I will not let you move on until you realize what you have done. You see, sometimes God uses severe measures to get us to respond properly, the agonies of guilt. And I like the word sela. It's like a pause. Let's ponder that thought for a moment. So what now? What should you do with guilt? Confess your sins to God. If you don't want the agonies of guilt, confess. That's why lesson number three, the pattern for confession. Verse 5 said, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Proverbs 28 verse 13 said, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You see, in what an apparent simple process, yet a wonderful far-reaching effect is detailed in this pattern of confession. Three phrases, I acknowledge, I did not cover, I will confess. And it is interesting to note that this, in this verse, we have again the three words for sin, which is sin, transgression, and iniquity. This pattern of confession defines what the word confession means, and the first is to acknowledge my sin. To confess is to acknowledge my sin. From the word, I acknowledge, you made known. It is to bring forth. It is saying that I know by experience. And it is from the root word, to know. So when you had that lustful desire, or when you had that hatred or vengeful thought, and you are brought upon that sin, and you name it as it is, and acknowledge it, and you said, it is mine. Yes, Lord, I did it. Therefore, we acknowledge or we say the same thing as God does say about that sin. And when we acknowledge it, He said, do not cover your iniquity. 
That's also part of confession. You bring it out in the open. You become honest with it. To say, yes, Lord, I am the crooked man. I have been hypocrite. And we owe to the fact that the thought and the action, Lord, is wrong. Because, you see, if we uncover our sins before God, He covers it by the blood of His Son. Then comes the fruit of our mouth. I will confess my transgression. It doesn't say I will confess the sins of my neighbor. It says I will confess my own sins. And what was the last line on verse 5 says? It says, You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Let me make a point here. Confession is the condition required for forgiveness and it is not the cause. It is a prerequisite to be forgiven but ultimately, God forgives. Because sometimes, you know, we put emphasis on our own confession. It is like, okay, I've confessed. Lord, it is your duty to forgive now. It's not that way. So, example, if you have a viral skin rash and you deny to have it, you can't be cured. But if you admit that you have a viral skin rash, your admission is not the cure. But then that's the start that something can be done about it. That is how confession is here. Ultimately, God forgives. That is why there, that this, that is, why there is that excitement in the psalm. And reading here has an emphasis on the word you. That's why he says, you, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's why I'm looking back to the question again, why confession is part of our daily prayer. Sometimes we have forgotten, we have forgotten the fact, you know, the miracle of forgiveness. Who is a God like you? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Exodus 34, verse 6 to 7. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First, nine, first John 1.9 And that is good news. That if we confess our sins, God forgives. And that is because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Because the sinless Savior died, my, sin, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Again, the word Selah. Here, this is the antithesis of the one from verse 4, where there was a lament from torture and guilt. But now, if you confess your sin, God forgives. Now is a clear tone of our blessed joy, our resounding yes and amen. There is blessings of forgiveness there is the agonies of guilt. There is the pattern for confession. Now, the safety of the godly. Verse 6 to 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. With the experience of forgiveness of sins brings with it 
a sense of security in God and full assurance of deliverance from sin and trouble. What David is saying here, you know, from my experience from the forgiveness of sins, because of this, for this reason, let everyone who is godly pray to you when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. That's the safety of the godly. And from his experience, he said, because of this, let my experience serve an example and encouragement to others to pray. And who is he encouraging to pray? Who is he encouraging to seek God for forgiveness? Not the ungodly ones, but the kasid, the godly one, the one who is recipient of God's favor and loves God in return. Psalm 149 verse 1 said, Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, sing praise in the assembly of the godly. It's the same word, godly. Proverbs 2 verse 8, Guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of His saints. Same word again, godly. And yes, even God's pious ones needs to ask forgiveness, for renewed pardon, for fellowship, for strength against sin and temptations daily. Godly people doesn't mean they don't sin. On the contrary, the godly are characterized by their attitudes towards sin. They hate sin and they are conscious of sin. And then when they commit sin, they don't keep silent, but they call upon God for forgiveness and power over sin. They run to Him for safety. Let them pray at a time when God may be found, in the time of finding. Every time of seeking God in prayer is a time of finding. But as you can observe from the text, it says, while you may be found. It also implies here that there is a time when you cannot find God anymore. In a way, it talks of his execution of his divine judgment. That the time between sin and judgment is the time of grace, which is designed to lead sinners to repentance. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Isaiah 55 verse 6. Behold, now is the time, as a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. And the one who seeks God through confession and experiences the blessings of forgiveness has no need to fear of the coming judgment. You see, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach Him. Yes, God's people experience flood in their life. Yet you are like a man set on a rock amidst the flood, whether it is temptation to sin or calamities in life, if you seek God and are reconciled to God, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach Him. And God's safety is expressed in three ways. He is a hiding place. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me in the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Psalm 27 verse 5. Beloved, there's a big difference between knowing God as a hiding place 
and knowing Him as your very own hiding place. So if you are caught in the storm and in the distance you saw a shelter, will you not run to that shelter to find cover? It was a hiding place before, but it became your hiding place when you ran to it. Therefore, run to God and hide in the shadow of His wings. He is also a protection. He said, you preserve me from trouble. The word trouble here can be translated distress, tribulation, or from an adversary or a foe. And the word to preserve can be translated to guard or to keep. The expression here is taken as an application to God's people at all times. But you see, it is true, we may not be always be delivered from every trouble. But there is such a thing that we are delivered in it. Maybe the answer for your troubles is that my grace is sufficient for you, like for Paul's thorn in the flesh, or with assurance. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time may not be worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Romans 8 verse 18. For we do not know in which way He will preserve us, but whatever it may be, He is our comforter. He said, You surround me with shouts of deliverance or with songs, literally shouts of triumphs and victory, which are echoes of His promises to us, which bring sweet music to our soul. And for us to cry, It is well, it is well with my soul. And once again, Selah. Lesson number five, priestly instruction. Verse eight said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. There's a great deal of discussion about these two verses on whether it was David speaking here or the Lord. You can say that um, David is speaking here in his fulfillment of his vow in Psalm 51 when he said, then I will tra- teach, your, teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Well, if it, that is in keeping with the masculine character of this psalm, which is to give instruction, you can look at it that way, or you can say that this is the Lord speaking here, especially when the verse said, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And that can only be true with the ever-living and seeing one. Proverbs 15 verse 3 said, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. I would take that God is speaking here in this verse. Whatever your take on this verse is, this is the special promise to those, to all those who make God their hiding place and are willing to be instructed and led in His way. Make me to know your paths Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Psalm 24, verse 4 to 5. And this is what every Christian needs. That is why confession is part of our prayers. We fall down on our knees and we come honest before God and seek His forgiveness. The benefits of which is pardon, pardon, protection, 
now guidance and instruction. Psalm 31 verse 3 said, For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. God will bring instruction in him in, he, in which he himself is saying, I am fixing my eye on you. You are precious in my sight. I am taking interest in what you do. You know, his eyes are on the sparrow and I know he watches over me, says the hymn. R.C. Sproul, a theologian, was asked, what's the big idea of the Christian life? He answered, the big idea of the Christian life is coram Deo. Literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. To live coram Deo is to live one's life in the presence of God. This is what the verse is saying. Those who live under the instructions of God is to live in the presence of God, understanding that whatever we are doing, whenever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent. He is watching. He is listening. And He's looking if the lessons He taught us about forgiveness of sins, His provision for safety, is taking root in your life. And if we are being renewed day by day to the image of Christ. Well, you can take comfort on that or you can be fearful for the instruction comes with a warning. And verse 9 says, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So what is this telling us? The meaning of which is that God expects from man not a constrained obedience, but willing obedience. I say again, the meaning of which is that God expects from man not a constrained obedience, but willing obedience. But if necessary, He knows how to use pressure points to direct you. He knows how to tame and break the stubborn man. He knows how to put you in your place. So the instruction here is for all of us is to be sensitive to be teachable, and don't be spiritually dense. You see, we are like stallions when we sin. Have you seen the uh, racehorse gallop? We gallop with all grace and form to commit sin. But when corrected, when there is a call of repentance, we are like a mule who needs to be whipped, pulled with a bit and bridle just to put it in place. And what it means is that you don't bring yourself into compromising situation and then you pray for strength. Oh Lord, help me. I'm being tempted. Yet you keep looking. Yet you keep coming. Yes, there are places you won't go. You can, but it says you won't. Yes, you choose what beach you go to during summer. I heard that from our brother Ben. Yes, there are gatherings you stay, from, uh, you stay away from. And yes, there are even people you stay away from. It says, listen to instruction. Remember Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
and on His law, He meditates day and night. And lastly, the joyous declaration. Verse 10 to 11, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The contrast in state and disposition between the righteous and the ungodly, between those who trust and those who agonize, is in verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. The wicked, or the lawless man, is contrasted by the one who trusts in the Lord. The wicked is not simply the sinful man on the street, but the unbelieving, the one who is rebellious against God. And the righteous are those who trust in Him. You see, though sinful in nature, they are the one who confess their sins and has been reconciled by the forgiveness of their sins. And these are their destiny. The wicked, it says, though they prosper for a while, shall have many sorrows, not limited to this life, but for all eternity, to a place prepared for the devil and the ungodly. But to the one who trusts in the Lord, steadfast love surrounds him. Steadfast love from the word kesed, translated as goodness, kindness, loyal love, and mercy. King James' translation said, mercy shall compass him about, or mercy shall surround him. Lamentations 3, verse 22 to 23 said, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. That's another way of saying it. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Isn't it true today, brothers and sisters? We are here today because of His mercy. You're alive today. Your heart is beating because of His mercy. Back in verse 7, David said that the godly is surrounded with shouts of deliverance. And here is another circle drawn. His steadfast love, His mercy surrounds the pardoned sinner. Therefore, the shouts of deliverance are continuous as the mercies that surrounds him. Ain't that wonderful? Are you glad to know that God surrounds you with His mercies, which are new every morning? And you would know that, brothers and sisters, if you, if you made right it with God, if your heart is made right with God with your constant drawing to Him, confessing your sins and seeking forgiveness, for the sins that we have done. So in closing, the reason why confession is part of our daily prayer is because we want God's blessing of forgiveness. We don't want to suffer the agonies of guilt. We want to be in the safety of His presence. We want Him to instruct us and guide us in the way we should go. We want His mercies, His steadfast love to surround us every moment of our life. But can that man or woman, after being forgiven of his death, come out of that prayer closet with a frown of his, on his face? How should we respond? Verse 11 said, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 
How should we respond? You should be glad. You are the most blessed man or woman in the world. His steadfast love surrounds you. Do we serve a generous God? Surely we do because He makes it part of our obedience to be joyful. You know the word, the Hebrew word for be glad signifies an inward and hearty joy by the presence of at least a desirable thing or need. They said Calvinists are good in this area. They are glad inwardly, but somehow, somehow, it just doesn't show in their faces. So are we glad in the Lord? Not only glad in the Lord, but rejoice. And the word rejoice is used to express joy by an outward gesture and is used sometimes for dancing. How do we rejoice? Is your rejoicing worthy of His praise? Or are we even afraid to raise up our hands because we don't want to be called happy clappy? Should not our mouth at least open and say, Thank you, Lord. And not only that, David also said, shout for joy. Well, you know what the word shout for joy means? It says shout for joy. Do we not have a reason to rejoice? Confession restores us to the joy of the Lord. Have you received the blessings of forgiveness? Rejoice! Does God bring you to repentance through the conviction of His Holy Spirit? Thank the Lord! Is He not faithful to, conf- to forgive when we confess our sins? Bless the Lord! Is He not our hiding place because of the forgiveness He brings? Praise the Lord! Is His eye upon us to give us priestly instructions. His love endures forever. And if you receive all this, it is our duty to shout for joy, to sing His praises. Lift your voice unto the Lord. Let us pray. Father our God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You because we can come to You and confess our sins to You. And knowing that you have declared in your word, you are faithful and just to forgive us. We thank you for your son Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who guides us, teaches us, and strengthens us. Father, grant us this blessing. Secure us the safety of your protection. Instruct us with your priestly direction. Enable us to sing your praises. For we ask this in Jesus' name, and let God's people shout, Amen.